Hello everyone, I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another Red Shirt Friday edition of Rural Route to the program where we gather every day at this time. Everett Forkner, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between rural and urban America coming to us from Richard, Missouri. Just another week in the life of Everett Forkner. <laughs> I don't, nobody ever has a week like you've had, Everett. <laughs> Well, it's been a full week, Trent. I'll have to admit. Uh, uh, starting out with uh, with our little celebration that uh, we put on, and then uh, two days later, having a right hip replacement surgery and getting released yesterday afternoon, and now I'm home convalescing, talking to you. Yeah. So originally, we had this grandiose idea that you'd be standing out next to some beautiful Maine Anjou bull in the pasture <laughs> doing this video. But suddenly, in your red scrubs, uh, fresh out of the hospital, you, you don't feel like you want to do video. <laughs> no. Your PR well, manager, think, yeah. Ernie Barnes, is going to be disappointed in us. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, well, it wouldn't be the first or the last time that Ernie Barnes would be disappointed. But... <laughs> He's lived with disappointment for 60 years. <laughs> <laughs> yep, you got that right. Um so most importantly, uh, I, th- I think most people, if you're in the livestock world, know Everett Forkner just as a, a living legend. I don't mind saying that in front of you. Uh, has joined us on the air several times talking about different things. And one of the ultimate recognitions that an individual can have is the Saddle and Sirloin Club, Club based out of the North American dating back to 1900 when the Chicago International started recognizing individuals who have gone gone above and beyond in the world of livestock. And this year's recipient recognition celebration was Everett Forkner. It did not take place in Louisville, Kentucky, as it normally would. It looked like it took place in a gorgeous place somewhere in southwest Missouri. Where was that, Everett? (laughs) Well, I guess you can almost say the foothills of the Ozarks, but there we uh, go. not not quite that, but kind of that kind of a setting. No, <clears throat> we have a we have a gentleman who runs a bull test facility here in that part of our county, which is mm-hmm. a little more Ozark oriented, and he has been quite successful and has uh, a restaurant that's gained a, a tremendous uh, popularity and notoriety called Gobbler's Roost. And then he has built close to that an event center now that he can hold his production sales from his tested bull um, uh, business. And so we were able to uh, get a hold of the event center and have the recognition there. And then I will guarantee you there is no place in the world that I would rather eat than a good pork chop or a beefsteak at Gobbler's Roost. It is awful. Really? Uh, now I know why Dave Nichols was in such a hurry to get down there. He thinks he's going to set up a new Nichols <laughs> genetics <laughs> multiplier herd. Yeah, probably. Well, he's got some close to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dennis Liptrap, our, our mutual friend, Dr. Liptrap from uh, Kentucky, yep. retired University of Kentucky. When I was at the North American last weekend, he gave me the most recent edition of the Saddle and Sirloin inductees. It's it's just 
mind-boggling, Everett, and, and you're in such elite company in this nation's history when it comes to making improvements on life. So, first of all, just congratulations and well-deserved. Well, uh, thank you. That's really all I can say. And, you know, sometimes uh, <clears throat> you don't realize yourself uh, the accumulation of opportunities that you've been given maybe in a lifetime from uh, uh, a kid who was a country boy, graduated in the class of 12, went to the University of Missouri, never been on a campus before, and and ends up uh, years later, you know, with an opportunity to have met a lot of people. Uh, it's, it's Life's a people business, really, when it's all said and done. And uh, I have had the opportunity to meet and interact with a tremendous amount of people that I have a tremendous amount of respect for. And, well, I do have just one question right off, because the portraits are amazing. But it almost mm -hmm. looks like in the portrait that that's a Duroc hog with erect ears. Is there a little Berkshire in that Duroc? <laughs> Only you would pick up on that. Now, <laughs> to tell you the rest of the story, <clears throat> we uh, struggled with this little piece uh, there and we in fact we tried to make him look we tried to put him his ears down and all that and so finally we just backed up one day and i said no you know the red pig is symbolic mm -hmm. he's a red pig yeah his ears he's supposed to but he's symbolic and he's been there for 50 years so we ain't gonna mess with him we just leave him alone so but you were very observant didn't pick up on that not everybody would know that probably yeah i don't i don't know if that i'm any special in that regard but the portrait itself is just amazing what's it like to look at yourself in a portrait like that <laughs> well that's a good question i uh <clears throat> you know uh well i guess first uh, you uh, you kind of overwhelmed by the whole thing because you know it's quite an undertaking and then and then you know as as humans are you start looking really really close and then you can get a little critical if you're not careful so then you need to back up and get the big picture again and things are just fine but it's uh, it's quite an undertaking uh, I absolutely two days of photo shooting. Uh, just to get started on the uh, on the portrait itself, and and of course uh, the gentleman that does that has done I think I'm not sure twenty to thirty of those in a row now. So uh, it's hard for me to start where we should in this conversation, Everett, because you and I have been down the road together for so long. I, I don't want to miss <laughs> anything, but you just said something that brings it all home for me, Everett Forkner. Not only looking at the big picture of a portrait that's going to be in a saddle and sirloin at the North American building, uh, probably uh, to C, it's up in above C in the second level of C concourse. Um, the reason that Everett Forkner and True Line Genetics was recognized is because through it all, since you know 1900, not that you were here then, you've been able to continue to look at a big picture in not only genetic advancement, but staying in tune with what it is that pork production and obviously beef production as well needs. And very few families, I mean, we can count them on one hand, that have been able to do that from 19, 
sixty to to two thousand and twenty. What's your what's your insight on the big picture that allowed you to stay focused to remain a viable part of not only pork production but the seed stock business? Well, probably my answer to that is is that well, well first let me back up and say you're you're exactly right, and and I have in my lifetime in in our business we have made major changes in focus and the way we do business four times, and I could enumerate that to you mm-hmm. but i won't take the time to do that but i think the the thing that uh, you're hinting on is uh uh you know uh how were you able to do that and and i guess i don't have a real clear-cut answer except that uh other than you married I, well, uh, we're just taking that off the table yeah okay Ru- ruby <laughs> well, is, um, that, that was number one so aside from that ever what was it <laughs> Well, I I uh, I can remember yet uh, my first uh, year of, of uh, college at the University of Missouri, and uh, actually, you know, being a pretty much of a country boy that hadn't been too far away, uh, I was I was just amazed at uh, what I saw and the opportunities that were there, and so probably I was driven from the very beginning uh, by something new and exciting, and that probably transcended on over into my ability to try to and work at being a visionary enough to uh, to be able to make the changes that you have to make if you want to continue in the business that you love. And maybe that summarizes that a little bit. Yeah, I think it puts it in the proper context. My clock says that uh, we're going to have a minute to think about it. It is Rural Routes, Everett Forkner alongside Richards, Missouri, recently this week inducted into the Saddle and Sirloin Hall of Fame in Louisville, Kentucky, part of the North American. We'll be back with more Rural Route after this. I want to remind you about Certified Piedmontese looking at niche marketing opportunities. There's no doubt the future of food production is commodity it's always been this way but this is at a new level commodity business based on the economies of scale or niche marketing where you get paid properly for what it is that you produce lone creek cattle company is on the second tier of that marketing the tenderness aspect of the piedmontese cattle and rewarding the cattlemen for what it is that you produce details about the certified piedmontese benefit and how you could receive upwards of three hundred dollars per calf premium above feeder calf price there's a tier of 180 or 300 you call marlon will and ask him about details lone creek cattleco.com welcome back to roll route trent loose alongside everett forkner who now has his portrait alongside benjamin Tompkins, the developer of the hereford breed of cattle which i know has always been your goal <laughs> Well, I didn't know Benjamin real well, but uh, obviously he must have been an innovator. <laughs> you know, strangely enough, for for being from the UK, he must have been fairly innovative. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> you know, there was a few of those guys that uh, uh, came over here and probably uh, is part of our ancestry base that were definitely. Uh, uh, inquisitive enough and brave enough and uh, to say, hey, you know, let's take a chance. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's go. Uh, let's try this other deal. 
in night this was the one number there's a tremendous amount of education in in that concourse c at, at the north american and louisville kentucky but the one bit of facts that just sticks in my mind and anybody can read it and i know it to be true in 1900 Twenty percent of the workforce in the city of Chicago worked in the meatpacking business, and eighty percent, eighty percent of the meat that the United States consumer ate in 1900 came through Chicago. That's amazing. It is, you know, and I guess I picked up on that similar to to you. Uh, if I hadn't taken time to have read the history and and I. Kudos to the people that have put this together and maintained this because you also read in there at one time there was a devastating fire that mm-hmm. took away a lot of the early portraits and they had to be reproduced. And uh, so kudos to the people that uh, that made that happen. But it really does focus on the changing times from clear back in 1900 you know, and we think that was a long time ago, but in, in the face of world history, it's a short time. But the tremendous amount of change that has happened just within uh, this country of the United States of America. It's just amazing. The other thing that jumps out at anybody that walks through and looks at the book or looks at the portraits up on the wall is that until, I'm going to say until a guy named Maynard Holberg was inducted into the Hall of Fame. It's predominantly cattle folks that uh, that are recognized. And so now there's a few more other species, particularly swine we're talking about today, that mm-hmm. are being inducted. Mm-hmm. I happen to be on the inside of who might be next year's recipient and uh, another pig influence there. I don't know what that means ever, but I, I find it significant. Well, I... I, I I would agree with you there, you know, and uh, uh, I probably know the same individual that you're talking about. And uh, uh, if that individual uh, moves forward, then I think they will. They will be certainly a a great candidate. And uh, so I I, I think the history behind the whole movement for agriculture in general is, is, is significant. And I just appreciate that someone took time and the effort you know, to not only start the program, but to maintain the program and uh, and uh, maintain the history of agriculture in the United States. It seems like now in 2020, more relevant than ever, You, if you don't know where you've been, you don't know where you're going. And people want to rewrite history, and we don't need to talk about that, but for anybody in the food production business, you need to understand where we've been in American agriculture so that we can get a better path for the future. And that's, that's to I, me what this accomplishes. And you brought it front and center. We're in the people business, and that's why this focuses on the people that made it happen, not the individual sires, so to speak. Yes, I think that's, uh, I think that's right on target, uh, Trent. I, uh, I, uh, when you look back at the gallery and some of those people you and I both know that were later inductees over the last, let's say, 20 years, um, they were unique in 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 their own way of being able to um, capture ideas and thoughts and uh, that uh, were were part of what it took to make the next step 
and uh, and we're always challenged by that. Uh, and some people are intimidated by that, and that's why you know you don't have a tremendous amount of people that are comfortable in making that next step and looking over the horizon when you don't know exactly what's going to be there. But innovation has always driven uh, American agriculture, and uh, really this is probably what we're talking about, a group of individuals in one way or another whose life touched innovation. Something new, something different. Here's might be a better way to do it. And so what's your innovative forecast for remaining viable in the future? <laughs> well, that's a good question. We we would like, you know, you we've got two or three things in, in, in mind here. We'd like this to be a continuing family venture, as it has been, and uh, we'd like to move it into the next generation, as we're attempting to do. And uh, But guess what? It'll be theirs. It's not mine. And so uh, we've kind of blazed a trail and, uh, you know, uh, not everybody's made alike. And if I don't have a a successor here that uh, wants to do it, you know, like I did or wants to do something a little different, you know, that's all right. That's all right. We will uh, will have uh, given opportunities to uh, family members and – had an opportunity to be a part of a of a kind of an, an exciting venture. A lot of people like to get passionate and hung up on particular breeds. Uh, you've had several actually that you've maintained and, and continued to move forward in all pork production. How do you assess the uh, one's allegiance to a particular breed? I think most people, when they think of Forkner Farms, they think of Duroc hogs. Would you agree? Yeah. Yes, sir. I would. And how important is that, that there's an allegiance to a breed? I think it's important from this standpoint. uh, You know, in in my case, and I think in most cases, the good thing is it creates an identity. You know, until maybe you have had an opportunity to uh, have created some success or some notoriety within a specific area or with a specific species or more yet, like you're saying, a specific breed with species, why uh, you get lost in the big picture. But I, I think I think the good thing about it is if you're successful in a single species or a single business entity, then that allows you to uh, focus ahead into well, this worked over here, so I think this will work over here in just a little bit different way. And so you kind of build off of off of your past successes with uh, knowing that that will not survive forever and that we have to make, make another step in order to uh, be a part of the future. You mentioned that you're recognizing certain species or breeds, whatever the case may be, but why is it ever that you could have a 1,000 cows... Ten pigs, and they would still call you a pig man. <laughs> I don't know. You know, uh, there's not. I don't. I don't find any offense in that, particularly. You know, <laughs> I. Uh, you have I to embrace it. That's I, the moral of the story. Yeah, 
<laughs> no, it is. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. I, uh, I, uh, and, and the good thing in, in, in my lifetime, I've had the opportunity to embrace both of those and receive a certain amount of joy and satisfaction out of the challenge that each one of them throwed at us. And, uh, so it's been good. Uh, I have one minute left in this segment. How is the beef business and particularly the Maine and Jew cattle world going well? Yeah, it's, um, it's uh, here. We continue to make small steps, I think, of improvement, and uh, uh, the cattle business is probably going to continue to consolidate more and more as we move forward. But uh, that's just a part of what's probably going to happen. And so, uh, it's uh, it's a journey, and uh, and it'll be interesting for guys like you. You know, it's going to be around quite a bit longer than me to to watch that happen and you know and you can be a part of it mm-hmm. i'm not confident that i'll outlive you but that's beside the point um <laughs> oh, for, i think you will <laughs> talking about that consolidation in the beef business for those of us that live through it in the pig business we can kind of be a fortune teller at times because it, it follows the same path whether you like it or not well i think you're right on target there and trent and so uh you and I, with uh, our past history in, in the pig breeding business, uh, that is kind of a model yep. that probably we'll see duplicated to some degree. Maybe it's a little bit of difference here and there, but yeah. Roll out, Ever Forkner. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more after this. The Stand at Paxton County is available for your viewing on Netflix. I'm promoting this because it's inspired by a true story, and it's happening every single day. The Stand at Paxton County. On Netflix, watch it this weekend. Welcome back to Roll Route, Trent Lewis, alongside Everett Forkner. Ernie Barnes, you're going to have to find another reason to call me every day and say, did you do that interview with Everett yet? <laughs> well, you got to like Ernie, you know. No, you don't. He got up. Uh, you don't have to. <laughs> uh, he, he did identify himself rather well there the night, and when he got up to speak, he said, I may sound a little funny to somebody, and I thought, <laughs> yes, sir, you're right on target. <laughs> he hasn't lived in Mississippi for 82 years, <laughs> and he still sounds funny. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, <laughs> uh, You know, but we laugh at Ernie, but that that's really what you were talking about. I mean, we just developed these friends that are just there with us no matter what. Well, there is a uniqueness uh, there, Trent, and uh, and I, I, I'm sure it's not uh, just within our realm and sphere of influence, but uh, when you can build a base of people that you've interacted with, you've planned with, you've grown up with, uh, you've challenged one another and some things like that, that is special. Because you know as well as I do, and I have had an opportunity to to be in charge of a, a number of meetings in my lifetime. And, and the thing that you always want to see come out of that is a synergy within a meeting where one man's idea builds off the last man's idea. And it makes one plus one equal four or six or eight. And it not, not very many times you get that accomplished but when you do it's just uh it's a magnificent thing to watch when you've got a group of people that you respect you know they're good thinkers and one's man's idea builds off of the last man's comments 
Yeah, I, I, that's about as profound as anything's been said on this program in 18 years. <laughs> well, I watched it happen, and and when it happens, you know about it, and and it's it is it, it is quite an experience. Yeah. Uh, I want you to weigh in on this because there's so much discussion today about animal welfare, animal welfare. Uh, we get all of these pressure points. We get all of these audits about animal welfare. In the late 60s, the degree well, – I'm curious. What was your actual degree in from the University of Missouri? It was in animal science. Animal what year did husbandry. you degree? Yeah, 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 yeah. See, there you go. Back up. What was your degree? Mm-hmm. Animal husbandry. And in yes. the was was it like sixty eight right just before seventy that universally mm-hmm. they changed it to animal science instead of animal husbandry? Mm-hmm. Would things yes, be sir. different today? Should we have not moved away from an animal husbandry degree and continued to focus on stockmanship? Well, that's a very good question, and uh, uh, of course the bottom line answer to that is you've got to cover you've got to cover both those bases. But it, as probably you're alluding to a little bit is <clears throat> we tend to get single focus a little bit right. when we change directions, and we've got to be careful. Yeah, because we continue, and in my world for 20 years, you know, repeatedly I say we have to follow science. Science is the driver. We have to explain the science. Okay, let's face it. Most people don't know whether the center of the earth is hot or cold. They don't have the first clue about science. And so we're we're kind of swimming upstream trying to tell people we're going to educate you with science when, number one, they don't know and they don't care. Mm-hmm. So we have, it's well, science I- is still the driver, but it's how we position it. And I think I just got a feeling that now, looking back, it's easy for me to be an armchair quarterback 50 years later, but I got a feeling if we still talked about animal husbandry, it would be different. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, it would be. Uh, I, I think an animal. The thing about animal husbandry, to me, it connotates care mm-hmm. more than anything else. And and when when at the end of the day, it is still the number one priority in animal uh, agriculture, because if you don't know how to really care for the individuals. Uh, you won't have nothing to worry about because they won't be right. there. So it is the care and the management of the resources that you've been given uh, that still is the basis that you work off of. And then once you, you get that part down, then part of the next step is, you know, more the scientific side of, uh, of of it and how we can we can measure today many things that we couldn't measure years ago and we develop uh, programs of selection etc and that's really uh, we you built you build off of the husbandry base uh, but it's still that's where it all starts because if you if you if you're not a good caretaker and you don't know what it takes to to keep them healthy and growing and and the basics why well, you won't have anything to worry about as far as you know how good you can make them or how efficient you can make them and or, or even how profitable you can make them not a lot of profit in a dead one or one that's you got that right and sick yeah. And everything else. <laughs> yeah so yeah. when you started animal husbandry at the university of missouri what were the um evaluation tools to determine genetic progress 
Were they were just starting to probe pigs, correct? Yes, uh, I uh, was uh, able to really be on the very tip of the spear in the front end of uh, a movement within the swine industry, mm-hmm. uh, moving away from the short lard type hogs that we needed the lard to make munitions in World War II to a pig that was much more efficient because it takes two and a half times more energy to make a pound of lard than it does to make a pound of muscle. And we then were able, and within my era, in the beginning of my lifetime in the breeding business, you know, to look at new avenues and new ways of improving efficiency uh, through genetic selection. And so a lot of the first half of my lifetime in that business was helping to develop programs and being a part of uh, uh, well you know how can we do this and do this better and, and a little more scientific approach than we've ever had probably in years past and years past there were outstanding breeders of livestock that just by the eye and the mind without any scientific help were just extraordinary individuals um, and that's what drove, I'd say, the livestock improvement business prior to this. Then as we brought into the field, why it, it, it allowed probably a more accurate, but it allowed a lot, it increased the volume of, uh, of improvement across all species and, and across all, all numbers that we didn't have before. Because you had maybe one individual, Gudgell and Simpson, with their, with their Hereford cattle, you know, uh, they were extremely successful in their line bred Hereford cattle, and uh, in their day, that was the driving thing that brought about improvement. Well, then we, you know, we moved from that though into other multiple ways to measure uh, efficiency within different species of livestock. And today, you're using genomics, looking at the genes to see how to make genetic progress. And we have not abandoned any of the other tools, but this is the next tool in the tool, toolbox to move mm-hmm. us ahead. Exactly. Yes, well said. Because uh, it's uh, as life is, so does selection within a given area of uh, business, probably. And uh, you're, you're right on target. That's, that is where we are, and, and we just keep digging a little deeper. And, uh, uh, but it has been to the benefit of the livestock business over the years into this country mm-hmm. to be leaders in those areas. Not that we still uh, don't have competition now that we didn't used to have. But uh, that's been one of the things that's made the opportunity within this country unique in a way as opposed to some other parts of the world. It's hard to imagine with uh, just to take, well, 1960 to 60 years, how we could make the same amount of progress in the next 60 years, but it's probably probably light years ahead of where we've been, too. Well, you know, you and I neither one uh, uh, know, or but except we know this that there will be change, there will be improvements, and in my lifetime, in the pig business, we have just exactly doubled the efficiency of pork production, or halved it, 
whichever way you want to look at it. We can produce as many pounds of pork today off of one sow as it took two sows when I got in the business in the 1960s. So that's the magnitude of the efficiency that's came over the last 60 years. Well, with that kind of a story, what I think you should do is take one of those hogs, paint it green, put it on public display, and try to <laughs> garner some attention with such a story. Well, you know, uh, I know I know a guy, uh, a couple of guys that kind of tried that one time, and uh, <laughs> it kind of worked. <laughs> yeah, the first person to pick up on it was Jane Wells, reporter from Los Angeles for NBC News. She goes to these True Line Genetics, and some guy's got a pig green here. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, we just continue to make that progress. Everett, we're going to... We've got about one minute left. I want your profound wisdom of the day. Well, that's not putting me on the spot much, is it? But that was the plan well, my... the whole time, put you on the spot. <laughs> well, I'll just say this. You know, uh, I'll answer that this way. Uh, I feel like that uh, within my lifetime, I have had a tremendous amount of opportunities laid out in me. And my challenge would be, to the next generation and the upcoming generations, don't be afraid to take the next step because not everybody is comfortable doing that. And there will only be a few that will lead. And sometimes they'll be wrong, but somebody has to lead. And as long as we have people with leadership skills and the ability to not be fearful of the future and the next step to take while well, we'll be okay and we'll get better. I think that summarizes it as well as anything, keeping the focus on people, not being mm-hmm. afraid. And Everett, as you have mentioned about six times now in this conversation, the opportunities came along. I believe everybody has opportunities. I believe too many people are afraid to seize on those opportunities, and fear is not something anybody has ever attached to Everett Forkner, Richards, Missouri. Congratulations on your induction into the Saddle and Sirloin Hall of Fame. So well-deserved, and uh, I really apologize that I couldn't be there, but I can't be seen with folks from Mississippi. (laughs) Thank you, Trent. Appreciate it. It's been a long friendship, and, uh, you know, maybe... In each of us's way, we've helped make a little bit of a difference in somebody's life. That's what it's about. Roll route. And once again, congratulations to Everett. When we come back in the final segment today, we're going to talk about that genomic testing. Clint is standing by. We'll talk about how you evaluate the genomics and put it into play in the cattle business. Back with the final segment of Red Shirt Friday. Roll route after this. Welcome back. Roll route segment four changing tone just a bit here Everett is always a pleasure to visit with Clint Berry's the same way though the dapper dude Clint Berry they say all good things are worth repeating so how about we try it again (laughs) Uh, that's that's good to go yeah that's right from the highways and the byways of Indiana there are no cattle in Indiana what are you doing (laughs) well we we joke about it all the time because we're going to ship seven loads out of here in the next couple of days and we like to joke that about half of all the cattle in Indiana are going to leave that aren't tied to a halter. So <laughs> yeah. that's a pretty, pretty, pretty big outfit here. We've got a, a cooperative group. I've been working with them for six or seven years now, and they do a great job of smaller cow herds that work together 
shared genetics, shared animal health, shared replacement strategies, shared cabin season, nutritional programs. The cattle are all the same, and they come together as a group and market them in a in what we call a pool or you know like an association type scenario. And uh, sure. we we ship about seven loads, six to eight loads every year out of here. That's something that the Southeast has been pretty aggressive with for some time now, right, Clint? Yes, yeah, and uh, the the kicker is always everybody wants to talk about the cattle, but I'll give you an, a little insight. The kicker yeah. is the people. If the people are willing to cooperate and work together, set aside a little individualism, which is hard in the ranching world, we all know that, but It'll never happen. A little individualism never happen. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and and look at it from a group standpoint because you're only the cattle are only as good as the weakest link. So um, if they're willing to cooperate. It, it can work really well and pay big dividends, but you have to be willing to be a part of a group and not be an individual to, to make it happen. It takes the uh, right knowing you like I take the knowing right you like I do. They, they they probably have to have a red hide to even get on your truck. <laughs> Funny you say that. They're <laughs> going to be almost all black. <laughs> oh my goodness! What is yeah. going on? Clint Berry's gone these- to the black side. These guys joke all the time. They're going. They tell me they're going to buy me a T-shirt that says I can sell black cattle too. <laughs> <laughs> Proof is in the pudding, right there. That's right. That's right. Uh, you mentioned um, the genomics, or you mentioned genetics. Mm-hmm. They all have a common genetic. Are right. they then also looking at the genomics? What's going on genetically in their bull selections? Yes, sir. They do. They do. Um, haven't utilized genomic testing on the replacement heifers yet at this point. Uh, we are discussing that and, and what that looks like, what that details, what information that would generate to feedback mm-hmm. to the to the sellers, you know. But they're, they've not utilized it within their own heifers at this point. Um, but they use it, absolutely use it in bull selections. You know, I mean, they, they don't do business if they can't, if the, the bulls that they purchase aren't genomically tested to enhance those EPDs for accuracy level reasons. So since I started doing this series with Neogen, I think that's the big, biggest awareness for me, Clint, is that I, you know, we've been looking at certain genomics for quite some time. You say these guys that you're working with in this particular region are not yet looking at the maternal side. It's been a shocker to me how many people are actually looking at things like stability yep. and cow profitability from a genomic right. standpoint. That's something that previously a lot of people just didn't give a lot of thought to. That's true. That's true. And, and let me clarify that. I don't want to make it sound like they're not paying attention to the maternal side. They're just doing it through their bull selection at this point rather than gen- actually genomically testing the animals right. that they're looking at keeping as replacements. But, yes, you, you, you are correct. And, and because if you think about the investment we have in a replacement female, and it mm-hmm. doesn't matter if you're keeping five or 500 females back, the, the cost to develop a heifer to calve, and then on top of that, we all know that the highest fallout rate is first calf heifers breeding back. But so, you know, if you look at the three-year cost from the day that that calf's born, the cost that we put into that development of that animal, we, we want all the information we can have ahead of time. If we know sure. that she's a an average or a below average female for those traits before we ever make the decision of whether or not she goes in the keeper pen or is sold as a feeder heifer, that goes a long way, and, and, and while it, it does take an investment and cost money to do the genetic testing, it's not nearly the amount of investment we put into developing a heifer all the way to that standpoint just to learn that she was an average or below average animal within your herd for maternal traits. And that's, 
that's a part that I think it's kind of like a little bit of a risk management policy that a producer can use to offset that and make sure that he's making the right decisions. You know, you bring up something that we haven't really addressed, and you're in the perfect part of the cow country to address that, (laughs) is that uh, sometimes people think that only large operations can tap into technology, when in fact, I can make a pretty good case that the smaller your operation is, the higher, let's just call it a wreck, is going yep. to impact you, then if you have 500 replacement heifers, you're you're going to have some sort and fall out, but you won't have a total wreck. If you keep five, you need to know that those five are going to pay off because of that investment that right. you talk about, whether it is in producing calves that are going to go on this pooled truck or whether you're keeping back heifers. It doesn't matter. Yes, that's exactly right. I, I would argue the same point that actually the smaller your operation, the less room you have for a mistake. Right. You know, even in even in bull selection, if if you've got forty cows and are running two bulls, you're buying a bull every few years. You, you can't afford for for half of your entire bull battery, which is half of every half of a calf's gen, genetics. You sure. can't afford for that bull to be a mistake, or to, you know, versus if you're turning twenty bulls out and you've got one badman, your that that result is diluted within all of that calf crop. And, and I would tell you that a smaller herd has to be more protective of the decisions they make because, like you said, you, you have to the, – the effect plus or minus is spread out over a smaller amount of cattle. So mm-hmm. that effect is multiplied, good or bad, is multiplied more in a small herd than it is in a bigger herd. Yeah, I think that's worthy discussion because it doesn't matter what technology we're talking about. I, I continue mm-hmm. to hear people say, well, I'm not big enough to use that. That's wrong. Uh, so when we talk about the identity test and genomics, mm-hmm. what do you see in terms of um, accuracy and how dependable it truly is? What I've liked about it, and I guess I would put it into terms of what my experience has been, and I'm going to use this through my customer base. Mm-hmm. Uh, first and foremost, in my opinion, all genomic testing and, and the DNA technology, the first step to utilizing that correctly in the commercial side is to make sure that the bulls you're purchasing have been genomically tested to enhance the EPD accuracy of those animals. When I buy a Cavanese bull, I want to have genomics pulled on him so that I know that's a Cavanese bull or a growth bull or a carcass bull or a high maternal bull. That doesn't matter what the trade is. I want that snapshot, that lead time to know that that animal is, in fact, exactly what his EPD says it says that he is. Mm-hmm. And that's vitally important because that's a mistake that if we make at the time of purchase, we have to live with most likely four to six years of service from that bull. Right. And we're right. At, plus the replication of the daughters that we may be keeping out of him. So that's step one. The second step then that, that I know some of my customers have started doing is using that the genomics to go back and test their replacement heifers and and we replicate that i guess or or we utilize that data in in two ways the first way is to keep a better replacement heifer so common sense i mean just good animal breeding first thing you you have to go in and cull your replacement heifers you're you're not going to keep a poor structured animal with good genomics and you're not going to keep a a bad tempered animal with with good genomics or 
or I would argue maybe one that's colored up to the point that your calves are sorted off every time you go to sell them. They probably shouldn't keep that as a replacement heifer, regardless of how good her genomics are. But if a guy would go in and make the initial sort, and all of the, visually speaking, all of the cattle that are left, you would be willing to keep any one of them, then, then go in and utilize the DNA technology to help you pick the best cattle for the traits that you can't see with your eye. You know, higher degrees of stability, higher degrees of heifer pregnancy, higher degrees of marbling or whatever the traits are that you're needing. You know, if you want to enhance some cabinets or enhance some growth or however you want to utilize that, those traits, that way you can pick them out from your existing heifers then market the ones that are below the average or, or lesser quality for what you're searching for as feeder heifers. Then the second side of that, that, that we've been utilizing, at least with my customers selling on Superior, we translate that genomic data, those results, onto the steers that we're marketing. So this year mm -hmm. in July at the, at the Week in the Rockies sale, I had uh, two loads of cattle or two lots of cattle on with identity testing some of the first that we'd offered at video and they had tested their replacement heifers but used that data as a reflection on the steers to, to talk about carcass merit now sure. no no feed, no feed yard out there in the country really cares how high your stability is or your calving ease when on we're talking steers. about your but we can translate what we learned from the heifers as a reflection on the steers and and through the years you can you can show that that information and how you're making progress on those cattle to make them better for those traits that are important to a feeder, you know, post weaning growth and carcass merit. Mm -hmm. You know what I got out of all of that, Clint? What? That a, a good cattleman would, would buy the flowered up calves, breed them to bulls with known genomics, have a cheaper cow that generates a solid covered high quality calf. <laughs> that's, an, that's another way to look at it that's right you know colored up kind of like your beard going on there that's right that's right yeah i'm telling you're not you, old Trent, enough to have that gray showing up in there what's going on with it's that a, it's a that's a i'm a i'm a reflection of chris ledoux that it's not the years it's the miles buddy <laughs> <laughs> i was wondering what reflection you were now i know <laughs> yeah yeah uh I sh you make me feel bad i wish i would have had my good old hat on and be a little more contending for you instead of the straw after Labor Day. I know all about that. All right. Clint Berry, closing comments about how, and I want to just point out one other thing. When we talk about genomics, I'm not making this a leading question, which it sounds like I am. We don't want to throw out all the previous tools that we've had in genetic selection. This is just one new tool. It's an enhancement to it. You know, think about it like fuel injection on an engine. This is just furthering the ability for those tools to work and work at a more accurate level. That's the way that I look at it. It's a it's a greater degree of precision into our selection process. First off in bull selection, then second off in, in, in replacement strategy, and then using that same data to market your feeder cattle. That's That's how I see this tool really helping cattlemen is because it allows them to make more right decisions or in our world, more importantly, limits the number of bad decisions we make. We're going to see what bull suppliers are actually listening to this program because the first one that markets our bulls are fuel-injected enhanced. Well, yeah. no. I'm, I'm going to copyright that. <laughs> you better hurry up, my friend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, I think you ought to get home.
All right. Hey, thank you, sir. Great to visit with you again. My my pleasure, Clint Berry. Joining us from Monticello, Indiana, right in the heart of cow country. <laughs> and with that, we've successfully journeyed down the road connecting rural and urban America. My thanks to Ever Forkner, Clint Berry, Trent Luce. All three of us remind you that all roads do lead to a rural route on a red shirt Friday where we say thank you to the troops. <laughs> 